It is said that of all the topics of the Dharma that the Buddha spoke about, that he spoke more about right effort than any other topic. Right effort has a really uh, exalted pedigree, if you will. It's one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's one of the ten paramis, or perfections, of the mind. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the five powers. It's one of the five faculties. It's one of the four means for accomplishing your aspiration. And it's all four of the four right efforts. The Buddha light lists. Now we might ask, why did the Buddha have to speak so much about right effort? You'd think he'd be speaking about mindfulness or bliss or something other than right effort. And when I reflect on that question, now why would the Buddha have to speak so much about right effort? I can see two possible reasons. One is that the aspiration to liberate the mind from its habits, to really turn the mind around from its entanglement with suffering to the disentanglement and abiding in a liberated relationship with life is not an insignificant task. It is a major commitment and journey of discovery. It is not just a weekend thing. It's not just a nine-day retreat either. It is, uh, well, it is life-fulfilling, if you will, if you can really get behind the understanding of what's involved in that. And so there's just a lot of places on the path, on the, the journey, where we can get hung up, where we can take detours, where we can get stopped. And so the encouragement and the direction of how to make a heartfelt effort is needed. That's one reason. The second reason is that nothing is accomplished without effort. If you don't make any effort, even to bake bread, you don't, bake, you, you don't get the bread. If you don't make any effort to write a book, you don't get a book. If you don't Anything, no matter what it is you want to do, you have to make some physical and mental effort to accomplish it. And so, once again, there's a lot to accomplish in awakening the mind. There's a lot of need for hearing what is balanced, heartfelt effort in that situation. One thing I've noticed over the course of my years of practice and that I've seen in students and others on the the journey is that our idea 
of what right effort is changes as we move along the path. What we think is right effort when we first start is not what we would call right effort after we've been practicing for a while. It's just we refine our understanding, we refine our awareness, we refine our aspiration, and we continue to as we go along in practice. And because of all that, we also refine our understanding of what right effort, heartfelt effort, balanced effort, really is. Ajahn Chah was a Thai forest uh, meditation master. And he said, I know the path very well. Sometimes I see somebody going down the path and they're about to fall in the ditch on the left. And I say, go right, go right. At another time, I'll see someone going down the path and they're about to wander off in the ditch on the right. And I say, Go left, go left. Anybody else hearing these two instructions would think he was contradicting himself. But in fact, what he was offering for instruction was appropriate to that person at that time. And that's how we need to hear all of the instruction, all of the guidance, all of the techniques, all of the understanding that's offered by whatever teacher you are drawn to or whatever teachings you're listening to is, how do you hear it? What does it mean for you to hear that? And how would you integrate that or apply that or use that in your practice at this time? Because... While the mind has its similarities, my mind, your mind, the mind, where we are in the path, on the path, and awakening to the mind is very different. And so we need to hear different instructions, different encouragement at different times. The Bodhisattva, Prince Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, lived in his father's palaces for 29 years, indulging in all of the luxury available to a prince in India 2,500 years ago, which, if you listen to what, how he described his life at that time, was not insignificant. It was a pretty luxurious life, lifestyle. But his karmic... Uh, choice and impulsion was to leave his father, the protection of his father's palace, to go outside, see the truth, and, and to, to, to leave the palace and, and go to really practice in order to realize suffering and the end of suffering. How, what, what is this all about here? And he undertook six years of very austere ascetic practices where at times he was living out in the open, alone, practicing day and night, 
eating very little, a grain of rice every couple of days, and just in some ways trying to, you know, kind of beat the body into submission to the mind. At some point he realized this doesn't seem to be working. And he had a memory come to his mind of when he was a young prince watching his father ritually plow a field, his father the king, ritually plow a field for an abundant harvest at that festival. And while he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree, this young prince, he was interested and relaxed, and he spontaneously entered an exalted state of mind. And he remembered this when he was, after six years of fasting and torturing himself, he remembered this time when he was a young man. And he remembered how cool, how at ease, how peaceful, how wonderful it was. And he thought, geez, maybe that's the way to awaken. But he was suspicious of the pleasant feeling in his mind at that time. But he did a scan and he looked back and he said, you know, that pleasant feeling in the mind was not due to an unwholesome indulgence and just sensual pleasure. But it was the result of an exalted mind state. And so he then took that under took that memory and started to practice with more of a balance in his effort and his concentration where he was more relaxed with his alertness, where he was neither indulgent nor ascetic, neither aggressive nor passive, but he discovered the way to open receptively and to respond wisely. This is the middle path. The teachings of the Buddha's way to awakening is about finding the place in the middle between the extremes of indulgence and asceticism or passivity and you know and overactivity and so for each one of us it is seeing where we are seeing clearly where we are now in this moment and finding what is needed if anything to strike a middle path balance energetically, mentally. However we're off balance, take the step necessary to come back into balance. Our challenge as yogis is to know how to do that. In the course of learning the range of what the middle is, of course, we touch the extremes on both sides. Sometimes we try too hard, sometimes we're too lax, 
at some point we realize it, we make an adjustment, we come back to the middle, we swing too far, we go to the other side, and we're back and forth. And sometimes we swing wildly with wrong effort, crossing the place of right effort only momentarily in the swing. But in time, to progress on the path, we will spend more time closer to the middle. So the Buddha taught that there are four right efforts to be cultivated in practice. And I want to speak about them tonight because effort or energy, virya, is one of the ten paramis, one of the qualities of mind to be developed and brought to perfection on this path of awakening. So let me just mention them first, and I'll go into and talk about each one later. The first right effort is to avoid unwholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. The second is to overcome unwholesome states that do happen to arise. The third is to develop wholesome states of mind not yet arisen. And the fourth is to nourish and maintain and bring to perfection those wholesome states of mind that have already arisen. There's a lot of wholesome, unwholesome, arisen, unarisen there, but let me let me explain a little further. Before we can go too far, we need to define what wholesome and unwholesome means. Unwholesome means those thoughts, beliefs, behaviors, speech, and actions that cause you or others any kind of harm. Physical harm, emotional harm, financial harm, social harm. If they cause harm, that's, an un- that's coming from an unwholesome state of mind. Wholesome means those actions, words, beliefs, thoughts that do not cause harm, but rather enhance a sense of well-being in oneself and others. So it's really, it's a pretty easy test, something wholesome or unwholesome, if you're not deluded. But it is because the mind is so thickly mired in confusion and delusion and beliefs and wrong understandings that we don't actually know for ourselves what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. We know the grossest stuff, of course. We've been taught that. But more than that is required on this path of awakening. We cannot only rely on instruction and guidance and the word of others. We must find out for ourselves what causes our heart to contract and what causes our heart to blossom. That's how we'll know. That's why we pay attention. Mindfulness is the ultimate arbiter of whether something is wholesome or unwholesome because when you are aware of it. You will feel the heart 
open or contract. And that's how you'll know whether something is wholesome or unwholesome. For that, we need to sensitize the heart, sensitize the mind. We know that what is going on in the mind conditions what we'll say and how we'll act. If there's anger in the mind, we'll probably speak and act displaying that anger. If love and appreciation is in the mind, we will have some speech and action to display that state of mind. What is less apparent but equally conditional is that where we are, what is going on in the body and externally condition what goes on in the mind. This speaks to the first right effort. And the first right effort is to avoid situations, people, places, events, things that are likely to arouse unwholesome mental states. Here on retreat, we come to a place that's secluded from our usual distractions, from our usual activities, our habitual obsessions, addictions. And we come to a place where we just, we just don't have so much exposure to that which might provoke unwholesome reaction. I know there's some people here that you might find kind of provoke some of your unwholesome. But on the whole, this is a pretty safe place pretty secluded from that which will really provoke you. We're avoiding a lot just being here. And in fact, our commitment to the precepts to, av- to refrain from you know, acting in such a way as to cause harm by killing, stealing, sexual activity, speaking, and the use of intoxicants, is all of them are this right effort of avoiding behavior that causes or conditions unwholesome states of mind. Interestingly, when we hear the word right effort, most of the time we assume it's got something to do with, you know, really getting right effort, kind of getting a little muscular about our effort. But actually, the first right effort is to do nothing that would cause harm. That doesn't require muscular mental activity or physical anything. You don't have to get strident about that. You just have to refrain from doing that which causes harm. So already... The use of the word effort, well, it's not quite right, is it? It, it? it just, we have assumptions about right effort that are wrong. It doesn't all have to be really muscular, really warrior-like. Because to avoid doing unskillful things requires mental energy, the mental commitment 
and understanding that this is unwholesome, this causes suffering, and exercising the restraint to refrain from acting that way. I was listening to Terry Gross on uh, NPR now, it's a couple of years ago, and she was interviewing a poet, and I'm sorry I don't remember the name, I googled it today, I couldn't find it. And she was reading some of her poetry and was commenting that some of her, a lot of her poetry is very appreciated by therapists and counselors who, who often share it with their clients. And she was talking about uh, working with depressed clients. And so she read this one point that is used a lot, or a lot of therapists uh, like. And one line in this poem just kind of jumped out at me like, wow, right on. And the line is, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. There are some dangerous neighborhoods in the mind. Don't go there without your mindfulness. That's what this means. When you go rummaging around in the mind, take that sensor, the, 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 the sensitivity of the mind, the mindfulness, that will tell you this is wholesome or this is unwholesome. Because when we go to a dangerous neighborhood, we want to be protected. We want the right protection for our mind, which is mindfulness, so that we won't get caught in an unwholesome state of mind, so we won't arouse an unwholesome state of mind. Take your mind with you when you go rummaging around. One way that we can do this in practice is to understand that it's really not the person, it's not the place, it's not the thing that is unwholesome. It's our habitual reaction to it that might be unwholesome. So we have someone in our life that's a real pain in the butt. You know, that every time we get to them, every time we have to spend time with them, you know, we end up, you know, irritated or frustrated or sad or what, whatever. Some, some, we get inducted into a mental state which we get caught in every time and it's unwholesome. Should you avoid that person? Well, sometimes if you can, fine. But sometimes you just cannot. Take your mindfulness with you. When you go, no, prepare yourself, knowing that this is what happens. You know, it's, you, you can't blame the person. You just have to recognize that your own awareness is weak. So prepare yourself. Take your mindfulness with you when you go there. We, as well as probably every other teacher you've heard spiritual practice from, offers 
ways of working with your stuff, your challenges, techniques, if you will. Some teachers will have you work with the breath, really trying to stay with the breath, really developing a lot of continuity or concentration. Some will have you noting, labeling. Some will have you doing all kinds of things to support your mindfulness. It is a mistake to think the technique is the goal. Technique is just a technique. It's a tool to do the work of awareness. Becoming a perfectionist of a technique is not what practice is about. I can say that, and nevertheless, I, I've heard that, and I still practice for years, taking the technique as the goal, not recognizing that it's the understanding that comes from applying the technique that is what we're really cultivating, looking for, that will liberate the mind. When I first started practicing with Upandita in Saito Upandita in 1984, we were here for three months. And he heard that my name was Steve Armstrong. Well, his English was, he was just learning English, and he really got into this Armstrong, you know? But for him, that wasn't important. What was important is mind strong. So I was seeing him every day. Every day I'd go in, do my bows, and he'd say, Mmm, mind strong. Is your mind strong today? Is your mind strong today? What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> you know, if I asked you, was your mind strong today? What's that mean? It took years before I really understood that what mind strong means is to have the courage to look at what's coming up. To have the strength of mind. You know, fear arises, jealousy arises, anger arises. To not just get rid of it. To not just replace it with its antidote. To not just get caught in telling yourself the story of why you should be feeling that. But to actually feel it. To have the strength of mind to allow yourself to feel knowingly what loneliness feels like, what fear feels like. It takes a tremendously strong mind to do that. Again, this is not muscular strength. It is strength of mind that can, can know this is the experience of whatever difficult emotion or mental state or feeling is arising. So this is the first right effort to avoid situations that provoke unwholesome. To be willing to go into painful places with your mindfulness. When necessary. The Buddha is always... Uh, he had this kind of hierarchy of, 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 of instructions. First, avoid. 
then if you can't avoid, minimize. And minimize your contact with those places. While minimizing unavoidable contact, take your mindfulness. Keep your time short and keep your mind mindfulness present. Because sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes we unavoidably come in contact with situations, people, events that, well, push our buttons. And before we can, before we know it, unwholesome states of mind have arisen in the mind. You know, one of the defilements has blossomed in full color. So now we need the second right effort, which is a responsive energy. Here it is, defiled mind. Now we need the energy that is willing to engage this unwholesome state of mind so that we're not overwhelmed by it. Second right effort is to, you know, is to overcome or to engage unwholesome mental states that have already arisen. This is all about the defilements. When the defilements arise, being willing to work with them. It is a misunderstanding to think that we've got to get rid of them in order to practice well. Because it is in the very engaging of the unwholesome states of mind, the defiled states of mind, that we develop practice. But what is the motivation for engaging unwholesome states of mind. Well, you know, for the first 20 years, it was get rid of them. You know, I would put up with a defiled state of mind just long enough to get rid of it. Sounds like a little aversion there. Actually, a better attitude, a more wholesome attitude, a more constructive attitude is to approach the defiled state of mind Seeking understanding. Remember, it is understanding which uproots the defilements. You can temporarily, you know, you get get a lot of anger, practice metta. You can temporarily put that anger aside. Got a lot of blame, practice forgiveness. Temporarily put that aside. You can do it every time it comes up. Temporarily put that aside, put that aside, put that aside, put that aside. The source of the defilement is still healthy and strong, just waiting for an opportunity to arise. Because we haven't understood how we get hooked by that defiled state of mind, by that defilement. And it is through awareness of the defiled state of mind and all that accompanies it, the stories, the feeling, the sensations, you know, how, how it makes you feel mentally, physically, the thoughts it gives rise to. It's understanding that through, through just directly observing it that ultimately weakens and uproots that habit of mind. Which is better? Let me just ask. Which would be better? To be able to shunt aside a defilement every time it arises once you notice it, or to uproot it so that it never arises. Well, 
without knowing exactly what's involved, we would like to think that it'd be better to uproot it, wouldn't you? You know, rather than having to pull the weeds of the garden every time they grow and sprout, wouldn't it be better just to have no weeds? Yeah. Okay, no weeds in the mind. No seed, no weed seeds in the mind. More better. Okay, so that's what... <laughs> that's what we're talking about here, is to really work on the roots of the defilements so that we understand them. We see them coming before they arise. And we can, we can apply the understanding that prevents them from arising. Saito Tejaniya says in his little booklet of instructions, most yogis make the mistake of expecting good experience instead of trying to work with the defilements. That's true. Most yogis do make that mistake. Hoping for good experience, hoping to avoid working with the defilements. But actually it should be just the other way around. We should come expecting to work with the defilements. Maybe just incidentally, getting a good experience every now and then. This is the, um, what I call the, the Nancy Reagan practice. Just say no. You know, when the defilements come knocking on your door, just say no. Now, I thought that enduring the defilements was the goal. And developing this stamina, you know, it's like, you know, you sit down and pain comes to the body at some point. And quickly on the heels of the pain is aversion. I don't like it. We get irritated. We get angry about it. We get frustrated by it. We get disappointed that here it is. Now my practice disturbed. But instead of working with the aversion to the pain, probably all of us have tried outlasting it. Just kind of grit your teeth, hunker down, wait for the bell. (laughs) You know, it's called stamina practice. You know, and believe me, you can develop a lot of stamina. You can just put up with excruciating pain for a long period of time. Well, when I first went to practice in, uh, with Upandita in, in Burma, at this monastery, sit an hour, walk an hour, 20 hours a day. Well, you know, after a couple of weeks, sitting an hour was okay. So I said, well, if sitting an hour is good, sitting an hour and a half has got to be better. So I said, all right, I'll sit an hour and a half. So I'd sit an hour and a half, walk a half hour. You know, did that for a while, and I said, hmm, sitting an hour and a half, if that's good, sitting two hours has got to be better. So I said, two hours, walk a half hour. That was okay, got to do that. Then I started sitting two and a half hours, three, three and a half hours, four hours at a time, just, you know, developing my stamina. But during this time, I was reporting to Upandita every day, and I'd go in, 
and I would, you know, speak a little bit about the breath, and then I would go into these exquisite, detailed descriptions of the various kinds of pain you come across when you sit for an hour, more than an hour. And I would just give these elaborate, long descriptions of the, mo- the you know, just the pixels of pain and how it was, you know, just the vibrating and tingling. It's just, uh, you know, and after a couple of weeks of this, Upandita looked at me one day and he says, in his very wise way, mm, you know why you have so much pain? I said, no, but I'd like to know. He says, you sit too long. <laughs> And the unspoken corollary was, it's not about endurance. It's not about just gritting your teeth and bearing with excruciating pain. It's about learning how to be with and be aware of and what can you learn from discomfort. I tell this story because every one of us at one time or another has mistakenly believed that endurance is the path. It's not. Nevertheless, we do have to learn how to endure discomfort. But that's not the goal. The Buddha said, the man or woman who conquers may conquer a million enemies or others on the battlefield, but one who conquers himself or herself is the greatest of conquerors. And it's conquering, it's overcoming these defilements of mind. Again, Saito Tejaniya says, Always remember that it is not you who removes the defilements. Wisdom does the job. When you are continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. Wisdom removes the defilements. Not you. It's a second right effort. The third right effort is to develop wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. Let's face it. You look at this list of the paramis, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, loving-kindness, and equanimity. We know what those are. We've all experienced some of that. But there's a lot of opportunity in our life to develop them further. On this retreat, we've offered you instruction in metta, or loving-kindness, equanimity, Renunciation, sila or morality, the precepts. We'll be offering you instructions in practicing generosity. Certainly you have to develop some patience. It's recognizing that these are the qualities of mind to be developed to become your default setting. If patience isn't your default setting yet, there's room for improvement. If equanimity isn't your default setting in, you know, opportunity where there's, you could have a reactive mind, if your mind doesn't resort to equanimity first, there's room for improvement. 
it takes a proactive approach in life to develop wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. We can't wait for them to just kind of sprout up like mushrooms. It doesn't happen that way. It takes effort. That's why it's one of the four right efforts is to check out the heart and develop that equanimity. Take the opportunity. We have a lot of reactivity. Don't wait till you're reactive. Develop the equanimity before you're reactive. Don't wait for, uh, you know, when you're angry and impatient, irritated. Develop the loving kindness as a, a proactive state of mind to approach these situations with. Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher, says, A crystal takes on the color upon which it is placed, whether it's yellow, red, white, or black. Likewise, the people you spend your time with will make a huge difference in the direction your life takes. Spending your time with spiritual friends will fill you with love for all beings and help you to see how negative attachment and hatred really are. Being with such friends and following their example will naturally imbue you with their good qualities. Actually, in one of the sutras, or one of the discourses that the Buddha gives, gave called the Mahamangala Sutta, he was asked, what is the greatest blessing for humans and other beings? What is it, what is it that most conduces to one's happiness and a sense of well-being. And I think the first two are to associate with the wise and avoid foolish people. Just taking that opportunity will bring you in contact with more wholesome states of mind. And just being with loving people or a loving person, arouses that quality in your own mind. It shows you the possibility, shows you the opportunity. Or being with generous people. If you're around generous people, you're going to be happy. If you are a generous person, you're definitely going to be happy. That's what happens. Practicing these paramis conduces to a sense of well-being. If you're around others who practice these paramis, you will be, you know, like infected with their happiness. It's that easy. But it takes effort to put yourself in the sphere of these wholesome states of mind. That's this third right effort. There are two elements to this third right effort that I think are really important. And the first is having faith or confidence in the Dharma. The Dharma is the truth. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. The Dharma is the path of awakening. And all of us stumble on this path somehow or have stumbled on this path in life without maybe yet knowing really what's involved, how far the path goes, what the goal is, what the destination is. And so we may never really have asked ourselves or seen for ourselves that we do have utter, unshakable 
confidence. When you come on a retreat like this, you know, it's ideal conditions for waking up a little bit, just really getting a sense of, you know, how powerful the Dharma is, how powerful practicing awareness is. And it can, you know, it can kindle the flame of faith and confidence in your understanding, your capacity, the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, and how you're practicing. But that confidence is weak. It's dependent on a lot of people, a lot of continuity of practice, and really paying close attention, and sometimes you can feel a little confidence. When we leave and we go back into the world and we don't have the group support, the schedule, the continuity of instructions and practice, that confidence can go pretty easily. If we want to sustain our practice, if we want the benefit of practice in our life, we have to practice. Confidence doesn't just stay there. You don't arouse it, get a glimpse of it, and it just stays there. It is alive. It needs to be nurtured. It is nurtured through practice. If you practice, you'll see the result. This third right effort is all about initiating practice in your life. Finding the opportunities. It's your life. It's, these are the, this, this is the, the guidance manual, if you will. You just take any of the paramis as a practice. Spend a year with one. Not just an hour. A year. Pick one. Make an utter commitment. Practice it for a year. There's only ten of them. In a decade, you'll have covered them all. (laughs) Change your life. Guaranteed. The second element of this third uh, right effort, after getting a glimpse of or having some faith, confidence in the practice, is that we get a glimpse of the both the immensity and the profundity of the path. And with that, we begin to refine our aspiration. You know, I'm sure you come with some aspiration. Maybe it's just to get through a nine-day retreat. Well, you're almost there. But somehow, being here, your aspiration might have shifted on you, and just completing a nine-day retreat isn't enough now. Now you've got to get a little more. And this is how... It goes. Our aspiration becomes clearer. It becomes more in line with the, the teachings of the Buddha. And we begin to be more accurate in our understanding of what it is we're doing here. And when we initiate this third right effort to arouse wholesome states of mind, not yet arisen, it it. it is supported by a clear understanding of the path, the scope of the path, the direction of the path, the the goal at the end of the path, if you will. I was speaking to someone earlier today about 
What a commitment it seems like this practice requires of us. And we can see it from that angle, if you will. And sometimes it looks like, oh my God, this is immense. This is just too much. I don't know if I can handle it. Maybe I'll just kind of just go for the first layer, if you will. But actually, that's a wrong understanding. I want to I offer you an alternative. The path is a direction, not a destination. It's a direction. And in any moment, we can align ourselves with the direction of the path. And that's all we ever can do. Is just find ourselves where we're at. This is the way it is for now. And see what direction you have to move your heart to be a little more loving, a little more patient, a little more truthful, a little more energetic, a little more understanding, a little more balanced. That's all. In this moment, what do you have to do to bring a little more of any of the paramis into your life? That's all the path ever is. Nothing but that. It can look like it's a long ways away. But it's always only right here in this moment. That's it. It's just in this moment. Can I be that? A little more loving. You know that great uh, spiritual teacher, Carlos Castaneda? He was taught by Don Juan, the uh, drug taker in the desert. The wise one. He was taught, Carlos was taught about right effort by Don Juan. Don Juan, Carlos said, assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. What are we emphasizing in our life? If we know the direction of the Dharma, that's all we need to emphasize. You know the space shuttle that they send up from uh, Florida? They send it up, and they got the onboard computers with the, uh, the internal map quest, you know, thing that kind of tells them, you know, take a left, go three miles, take a right, follow the path. And, you know, the space shuttle goes up, and it circles around, and da 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 And a few days later, it arrives at the space station, right? Hopefully, most of the time, all the time so far. What we don't realize, or what I heard recently, is that 98% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. 98% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. But it still arrives at its destination. Why? Because they make innumerable mid-course corrections. 
Our practice is something like that. 98% of the time, it feels like we're off course. You know, we're wallowing in the defilements, we're doing, we're overreacting, we, we can't get our meta together, and you know, it's just like mindfulness is gone, we go to bed early, we wake up late, we eat a little too much, the nap's too long. Nevertheless, as soon as you notice and you make that correction, you're heading in the right direction again. It's true. It's noticing when we're out of balance. Recognizing that a correction is needed, making the correction, we're back on track. It doesn't matter how long you have been off course. It doesn't matter. If you recognize it and make the correction, that's all you can do. Forthright effort is to bring to fruition those wholesome states of mind that have already arisen. Now, even after these seven days, you have a tremendous momentum of wholesome states of mind. I know you think otherwise at times. Nevertheless, let's face it, you're more mindful today than you were a week ago. You may have a little less reactivity, having practiced equanimity, than a week ago. A little more loving-kindness, a little more patience, a little quieter, a little more concentrated, a little more pure-hearted, a little more understanding. Even in one week, you can see a little bit of improvement, a little more of the wholesome states of mind. Do that for the rest of your life. I didn't say stay in retreat for the rest of your life. I mean, cultivate those wholesome states of mind. They've already arisen. Nurture them. Nourish them. Acknowledge them. Do what little bit you can each day. They will grow. We often miss wholesome states of mind. We're struggling so much to get what we think we're supposed to be getting and trying to get rid of what we think we're not supposed to be getting, that we don't take the time. We don't even recognize often that, you know what? There's a sense of ease in the mind. There's a sense of contentment. There's a moment of clarity without striving. And that's what it takes, is recognizing wholesome states of mind when they arise. So you go to lunch, and you see the cooks bring out all their stuff. And you have a feeling of appreciation. Don't let that go unnoticed. Because it is acknowledging that gratitude, acknowledging that friendliness towards them. You know, you've been around these other 60 people here for a week, haven't spoken to most of them, and yet already I'm sure there's some one or two or others in the group that you feel very friendly and in alignment with, that you have an appreciation for, that you, that you want to talk to at the end of the retreat, without even ever spoken to them. You know that feeling of friendliness? Acknowledge that. That's not a bad feeling. It's a wholesome state of mind. Metta. Acknowledge that. Because 
you know, sometimes we, I think we assume that when we have, you know, good Dharma practice, there's going to be like neon light shining in the in our mind, you know, like, wow, you've arrived at mindfulness or something. You know, now you're concentrated, you're entering concentration or something. It's not like that. It's just this little whiff that goes through the heart where you feel at ease, where you stop struggling, where you feel open, where you feel loving, where you feel patient. That's the wholesome states of mind we're looking for. And needing to acknowledge when they arise. Wisdom inclines towards the good, but it's not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but it has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. When you shy away from what's unwholesome, that's wisdom. Recognize that. When you're inclined to and drawn towards what's wholesome, recognize that. That's wisdom. When you notice the difference, you see the impulse in your mind to do something unskillful and you don't, that's wisdom. Acknowledge that. It's acknowledging what we know, what we see already in our life, in our mind, that strengthens it. It's by strength, by acknowledging wholesome states of mind, we strengthen them. We invite them to, to stay. And in doing that, they grow, they develop. Years ago, my, my father used to work on microwave towers. And they're these big towers that are up on top of mountains, hills, and they have these big ears on them, you know, that are aimed from one mountain to another. And they used to use them in the old days to, to transmit uh, radio waves and, and telephone calls. And they look like, God, they're these massive towers and huge big ears. And my father asked me one time, he said, do you know how much energy it takes to run one of those things? To send a beam of whatever it is they send from one to another 50 miles away? I said, no, but I could imagine it was mega, 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 whatever, whatever it is, mega volts, mega watts, mega, mega something, a lot anyway. <laughs> and he said, no. It takes just, you know, some minuscule amount, like half a watt. You know, a little less than a flashlight battery or something. And I thought, what's he talking about? And he said, it's not how much effort or energy it takes. It's the precision with which the energy is aimed. Because they are so precise from one point to another, it takes very little energy. If you don't know where you're, where you're going, it takes a lot of energy to get there. If you know where you're going, you use only the amount that's required. That's what we want to work to understand in our practice. Not just kind of generating a tremendous amount of energy, but it's applying the energy of the mind very precisely to avoid unwholesome states of mind not yet arisen to precisely 
engage unwholesome states of mind that have arisen. To energetically arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen and to nudge along, nourish further, bring to development those wholesome states of mind that have already arisen. This is heartfelt effort. The four right efforts, the four balanced efforts required to bring our practice to fruition. Let's sit for a moment quietly. It's not difficult to be aware or mindful, Saito Tejaniya says. It is difficult to maintain it continuously, though. And for this, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. For, for listening to the Dhamma. So tonight, we'll come and sit at 9.15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.